Welcome to the Make an Extra Cool podcast, the link between research, practice, and theory for those interested in the activities youth are involved with during non-school hours. The Make an Extra Cool podcast is produced by Case for Kids, a division of Harris County Department of Education, and I'm your host, Mike Wilson. There are numerous theories describing influences which can cause different forms of youth behavior. According to theories among many psychologists and child development specialists, a child's behavior can stem from many things, including a combination of genes and their environment. Linda K. Riddell, an ophthalmologist specializing in poverty, states that growing up in low-income situations can affect brain development, which appears to cause children from poor families to be nearly twice as likely to have moderate or severe attention deficit disorder than children from higher income households. Additionally, their ability to self-control may also be influenced by the student's surroundings. So, how do educators, OST professionals, and mentors working with youth positively influence children living in low-income families? To address this and many more issues is my guest today, Dr. William Parrott. Dr. Parrott has received international recognition for his work in school improvement related to students who live in poverty. He has co-authored nine books, the most recent being Turning High Poverty Schools into High Performing Schools, written with Kathleen Budge. Dr. Parrott is the director of the Center for School Improvement and Policy Studies at Boise State University. He is a frequent speaker at international and national conferences, and his consultancy includes state departments, board of education, state and regional service providers, and school districts in 44 states and 10 nations. Throughout his career, he has worked to improve the educational achievement of all students, especially those less advantaged. Those efforts have positively impacted the lives of thousands of young people. So it is indeed my honor to have Dr. William Parrott as my guest today on the Make It Extra Cool podcast. Dr. Parrott, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. I'm doing great. I'm, you're talking to me in Florida. We, we spend our summers in the Northwest and winters in the Southeast. Great, great, great. Well, I appreciate you taking some time. I know you have been busy uh, doing your work. Uh, and actually, that's a good segue. Can you provide like some basic background information that inspired you to do this do, to do this type of service? Sure, sure. Uh, the last decade, decade and a half, I've been working uh, pretty steadily with Kathleen Budge, my colleague. We were both at Boise State together, and that's where we launched our original studies, looking at high poverty, high-performing schools. Prior to that, both of us had been engaged in, in, a, in education all of our careers. I'd been a teacher, a principal, and mostly an academic at universities. Uh, following that, she had been a, a teacher, a principal, a, a super, superintendent, and we both uh, connected at Boise State as a part of the College of Education there in the Center for School Improvement, which I was the director of for 20 years or so, and uh, merged our interests 
Hers primarily in rural education and leadership, mine primarily in kids at risk and kids living in poverty. And what we, what we came upon doing at that time, uh, back in about 2007, 2008, was looking at schools with high pot concentrations, both urban and rural, and suburban schools with high concentrations of kids that lived in poverty, uh, surprisingly, some of these schools were, were significantly outperforming others. So we launched the first of three studies about 15 years ago to explore these schools across the country and in Canada and elsewhere around the world uh, to try to figure out what they're doing. How could schools defy that the common understanding most people have that if you got a lot of kids living in poverty, you're not going to be achieving very well. So from those studies, we uh, authored a number of books and articles sharing our work and primarily what we've spent the last oh, 15 again or so years doing is, is working with schools, working with districts, working with organizations like yours, working with with individuals that are committed to the belief that all kids can learn and all kids will learn if they are provided the opportunities to do so. And that's what these schools we've studied have clearly borne out to us. Our initial study, uh, we created a framework based on what we learned from studying these schools. Uh, it's now is called our flame framework for collective action. But it's a series of, of actions and cultural elements and spheres of influence that we determined that we found in all these schools that directly contributed to their successes. And when we're talking about successes, I should say a word or two. The schools we studied all had at least 60% poverty in them. And I'm going to use our... our uh, conditions of the last study. We replicated that first study about 10 years later at the uh, request of ASCD, who was our publisher. And uh, so I'll use the, the numbers from that study. 60% or more in poverty. They had to be outperforming state averages in their respective states. One of these schools was in Texas that we looked at. Uh, they had to be outperforming state averages in everything their kids were tested on for their respective states. So th those are the, the main criteria we looked at. And so when we checked data and looked around, we found these schools in every state country. They, they exist in all states. There are not a lot of them, but they exist, hundreds of them, we would say, as opposed to the tens of thousands of regular public schools. And that's what we're looking at, regular public schools. As after we would find schools, like in our last study, we, we started with a group of about 50, 55 schools that we, that we located. And uh, those schools were of a variety of different types. We wanted that. We wanted urban, we wanted rural, we wanted suburban, we wanted remote. Big ones, little ones, we wanted different configurations, elementaries, middles, high schools, K-8s, 412s. So they came in a variety of different shapes and sizes. And then we looked to see what are the commonalities, as you're asking, that were taking place in these schools from which we 
validated the framework that we'd created from our original study. So there are three basic th things that we look at. We look at uh, all these schools uh, were taking action in three specific areas. And those areas were building leadership capacity and collective efficacy. They all did that. They all built leadership capacity within their staffs and their professionals in the building. And they built collective efficacy among all their staff. They also focused on, on heavily focused on learning, but not just student learning. They focused on professional learning and the systems learned. The systems got smarter, more effective, more efficient. And those might be everything from the hiring systems to the operational systems. Those things happened in these schools. These schools, by the way, that we studied, all, all were nationally recognized and all had been sustaining this level of, of improvement for uh, at least three years. So we winnowed the group down to uh, 12 schools. That, that, that we validated in the second study, our original study. The third area is that these schools fostered healthy, safe, and supportive learning environments for their kids. So those three actions were happening in all the, all the schools that we, both that initial group of over 50 and then the group that we went out down to 12 schools. And they were, they were in state, states across the country. I mentioned one was in Texas. Uh, that school in Texas was a middle school in Brownsville, Texas, Stillman, Stillman Middle School. And I'll talk a little bit more about that later. But they were an example of a school that that was uh, had higher, you know, of all the tests. And you're familiar with them in Texas. I'll just use this one as, as an example. Uh, the tests that are required in the state of public schools. Stillman, we looked at three years of data at their school and they were outperforming both their district of Brownsville, other middle schools, and there were 10 in that district, and they were also outperforming state averages. And this is with a student population of 86% kids living in poverty. And uh, probably, I don't know the percentage, but way up in the 90s, 90% of the kids were, were Latina and Latino kids. So. That's, that's just an example of one school in one district that with 86% of their kids living in poverty were outperforming averages of all the kids in Brownsville district and all the kids in Texas, their school's averages were higher and they were doing it with 80%, 86% of their kids living in poverty. I could scoot you across the country to, to Concourse Village elementary school in the South Bronx, where 97, I think, percent of their kids live in poverty. Same picture, significantly outperforming the state city of New York schools in the five boroughs and significant averages and significantly outperforming the schools in the state of New York. And so those, are, those happen to be two big districts, big urban ones. We had a real small one in the state of Idaho, about 125 kids at Murtaugh School. And uh, that little tiny K-12 rural school, same picture, same kind of data. So when we assembled our group that we then traveled to and spent time with, deep, more deeply understanding what they were doing, these are the kind of schools that, that we looked at. 
Um, and, and none of these schools had been given big Gates grants or had been restructured by the state or any of that. They were, they were public schools which had developed a commitment to get better and had based that getting better and had accomplished that getting better with their own people and their own staffs. And, you know, they got better, they got smarter and they, they believe several things. And that's where, where I'll, I'll step to the next area of our framework, which is, is looking at school culture. And when we looked at the school culture of all these that we studied, there were six conditions that were prominent in these in these elements and elements of the school culture that we found that was both in the schools and had been developed in the schools. First of all, and this was the this was the con the concept or the framework we provided in our second study, our middle study between these two bookend studies that I've just described. Our middle study was entitled Disrupting Poverty, where we really looked at classrooms in these schools and elements of the classrooms and the teachers. What were they doing in these classrooms? And so here's what we found. And these are, again, the commonalities that from which we built this framework. First of all, caring relationships and advocacies. Advocacy. They knew their kids. They knew them well. They, they collected data on how well they knew their kids. You can walk in any school in America and ask most teachers, do you know your kids? And the response will be yes. But we always push that to say, show us, how do you know your kids? Show us how you know each individual's kid, kids' needs and interests and aspirations. And, you know, how deeply do you know your kids is essence, in essence that. So out of that comes this notion of, of they create relationships with the kids in these in their schools that and in their classrooms in which they build trust in which the kids become connected they they get to know where the kids live they get to know the kids families they get to know what the kids lives are like after school they they know the kids and by knowing the kids and knowing what their needs are they can tailor their instruction and their teaching to meet those needs so that's one area caring relationships and advocacy. And it's the same for, for adults too. If you know, you've been in schools, you've been a, an administrator and a teacher, it sounds like, and you know, you know who you've got a relationship and who you don't. And, and the power of that in terms of support and help and collectively working together and so on is, is pretty important. The second area after relationships, we found to be high expectations. In all these schools, they truly believed that all the kids were capable of learning whatever the curriculum and the state and the district expected them to learn. They had unequivocal high expectations for kids. We find one of the toxins in many schools that we get invited to a lot of schools that are struggling to help with. And almost always we'll find a level of what we call toxicity that exists in turn in and around low expectations. And it's pretty clear to us that if that by reality, but also in contrast with what we've, st we've studied, that if low expectations exist, you're, you're probably never going to become a high performing high poverty school. 
And it's because if you don't believe the kids are going to do it, you're not going to teach them to do it. You're not, it's not going to work. So high expectations and the support to get there is a ma massive arena within this work. Again, within these schools we found, you could go teacher to teacher, adult to adult, even kids to kids. The kids had high expectations of themselves. They set, often set goals. They monitor those goals. They get support from the staff to reach those goals. If you know they know what they're where they are, they know what their reading level is, all that kind of stuff. They engage with the kids in with that umbrella of high expectations always there. The third area is a commitment to equity. And there's a big difference between equality and equity. And if you, if you operate under a commitment to equity, you make sure the kids get what they need, not the same as everybody else. And it's going to require the kids that need more get more. One of our colleagues and a, and a pretty well-known educator who used to be the president of the Ed Trust used to say, you know, for, for too many decades, when poor kids come to school, we give them less. And when in reality, what they need is more. Well, that's equity. And if you aren't operating from a principle of equity, uh, you, you've got a, a steep climb. And it's often not the school, it's often individual adults in the building. So like high expectations and like relationships, you got people that get that and do it, what these do it well, same with committing to equity. What the schools, these schools that we studied and isolated seemed to find were, were schools that could, they weren't perfect. Every one of these 12 schools had issues and things they were working on and trying to get better at. They weren't at 100% of proficiency in terms of learning, but they were working toward that and believing if, through work, they were going to always endeavor to get there. The fourth area is a really uh, interesting one, and that, that is one that, that, again, educators can relate to, and that's what we labeled a professional accountability for learning. And what that basically means is when I teach something, if my kids don't get it and don't do well on whatever assessment I've used, I hold up a mirror, I look at myself, and I say, well, what do I need to do so that they will learn? In way too many schools, as we both know, Mike, teachers are there to teach and they teach and if they did, the kids didn't get it, guess what? It was the kids' fault or the family's fault or the friend's fault or the neighborhood's fault or somebody else. But it wasn't who you see when you hold that mirror up. And so uh, these schools really engendered in their staff and worked hard to, to build this notion of self-efficacy, meaning we're going to help you get better at what you do. But part of that is understanding that when you don't succeed in what you do, we don't. you don't blame other people. You look at yourself to think, what could I do differently? What could I learn? So developing a professional accountability for learning was commonplace in these schools among the staff. The fifth, the fifth area uh, was the will and the courage to take action. And the will and the courage to take action just, just means, are you happy with what your results are? If you are, and you've got 80 to 90% of your kids uh, at grade level, we'd call you, you're, you're in the category that we look for of a high performing school. If you're not, or if you're in a classroom and 30 or 40% of your kids, which is commonplace that we find in 
districts and schools we work with are not reading, reading grade level, it's going to take will, and it's going to take courage, and it's going to take work to change that picture. But it can be changed. Every one of these schools that we studied, everyone, not just in this group of 12, but in that group of 50 as well, everyone started out in pretty tough straits. They started out with maybe as many as 70 or 80% of their kids not at grade level. This is elementary kids. This is high school kids. We were just in a high school two weeks ago where the principal, a new principal, and is really making some good changes and working hard to improve, is really focusing on literacy and found that he, he's got a, a lot of kids and he's a school of 1,300. It's not a huge high school, but it's a good size one. He's got a lot of kids, maybe a hundred kids that, that don't know all of their letters and letter sounds. Basics of reading. They're, they're reading on like a second grade, third grade level. And it takes courage and it takes will to take that on. And particularly at the high school level, this guy's doing it and, and we expect to see good things happen in that school, but it's not gonna just happen. He's gotta put in place systems programs, supports for those kids that need to catch up. And that's gonna mean in his case, time after school, time on the weekends probably, summers, and it's gonna take in school the teaching of reading. One of the things that school in Brownsville, Texas, Stillman Middle School, is there a school that, that had two periods of reading. They taught regular English language arts, one of those for all their kids, and they had another class in reading. That was just a reading class. And I remember asking the principal, well, why are you teaching reading? You've got some kids that learn how to read and know how to read. And he, he looked at me and he said, he said, we want all of our kids at grade level we want them all at grade level when they head to high school. And reading is something you can do all your life. And we, one hour reading class, English class, was not getting it for us. So they, everybody in the school takes a second hour. This other school that I just mentioned that I was in a couple weeks ago, they'll be doing the same thing. They'll be establishing a reading class. But first, they'll know their kids, they'll look at their data, they'll understand what the kids need. The last area of these six areas is, is the one that we uh, entitled something that we have seen in all these schools. It's always been there. It was an addition from our first study to the, this third study, uh, and that's a sense of urgency. We're real good in education at effort, at working hard. So many of us work so hard and, and continue to not get the results that we'd hope to get. So there's a big difference between effort and results. And sense of urgency is kind of the kind of the accelerator or the glue that gets added to that that arena of if you got a sense of urgency, you're not going to be happy with just effort. You're going to demand that we get results. And if we aren't getting results with what we're doing, we're going to go back to the drawing board. We're going to make some changes. So all of those, Mike, are are conceptually what we find in these schools that are high-performing, high-poverty schools. And every one of them started, as I said, as a, as a high-poverty, low-performing school. But through their own actions, they, over time, have now gotten to the place where they're not just getting having a good year of results. They've all got 
plus percent of their kids at grade level and they're and they're working to increase and make that better. wow you said some um some things that actually my personal journey i could definitely relate to my uh, grandmother on my mom's side dropped out of school in the second grade my mom dropped out at the 10th my um neither grandparent except for my grandmother on my dad's side. My grandfather couldn't read, my grandmother couldn't read. Uh, they memorized the Bible, uh, but their expectations of my brother and I in regards to education was extremely high. And of course we had the relationship because we were family. And not only for my household, but like relatives that I had, cousins and aunts, their expectations for their kids were extremely high. So, you know, I was blessed to have a generation of family members and cousins where we grew up with school as being a very important factor. Um, and of course, the out of school time plays a big role. The environment that the kids go uh, into after they leave school plays a big role on their learning. Uh, and, you know, it was nice to hear that some schools kept the doors open because I've, I've worked with schools that closed the door once the school, the last school bell rings. And so it keeps the doors open to make sure their kids are getting what, what they need. Um, for coaches and parents and mentors and other people who work with students outside of the school time, would these this framework, would that still work as well uh, to encourage kids to, to do well in school? Well, it certainly would. And, you know, it definitely falls under the, the, that arena of commitment to equity and high expectations and relationships. And, you know, you can think of all the things outside of school where or I could ask you to think back to your high school days. Who'd you have a relationship with? What teachers really were there for you? A lot of times they were coaches. A lot of times they were that teacher that would, would be there after school or during the lunch hour. Or those are the, amazingly, we know when you have a relationship with someone that you trust and that you know has expectations for you, you'll probably, you'll step it up oftentimes. You'll work a little harder, you'll do a little more. And so, in, in all of those respects, the, the schools that we studied had all kinds of things going on after school and in the evening, clubs, things on the weekends, teachers, you know, I could give, I could just rattle on and on. You know, one of the teachers, I remember talking about how important it was for her, this was a California elementary teacher, for her to show up at her, at her kids' events like like uh, tournaments or performances or you know things definitely outside the normal school hour and she said you know I, I guess I know I'm not a lot of us are doing it at this school but but it makes such a difference I've gotten to know the family I've gotten to know the, the some of the relatives I've got you know and the and the kid you know is so excited to see a teacher you know, a professional, whoever that is they're working with, appear appear and be there for them. And that just does wonders. Now, is that a requirement? No, it's not a requirement. You know, some just can't. We've got our own families, our own kids. That's hard to do. But to do try to do some of that is is all within that realm of building a relationship with the student. Yeah, I always think of one in Portland, Oregon, when we were interviewing a kid that the principal asked us to interview uh, a, a kid, a young woman, a sophomore in high school, whose grades, he showed me her grades, and in the fall, her grades looked like 
呃 C C B A D D， and then this was the spring， and by the third quarter of the year， her grades were F F F F A F， and he said， would you talk to her？ And we said said sure， and she came down the hall and came into the room and she had hair sixteen different colors and lots of it and all kinds of piercings and the works. And sat down and 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 said hi. They said you want to talk to me, and I said yeah, we'd love to talk to you. Got to know her a little bit and pulled out her transcript and said how how does this happen? What's going on? I look at your grades and everything's gone down this year except one class, French. And in French, you've had an A all year. How can you how can you get an A in French? And A, an F in PE, and, and she looked at me and 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 she said, "Well, it's easy." She said, "I can't let that teacher down. If I slip up with her, she's on my case. She she follows me in the hall. She calls me at home. She asks me to stay after class. My she knows my folks. I can't let her down. French isn't hard." And I said, and I thought, well, French was sure something I I never even took because I knew I wouldn't do well in it. And she said, it's not hard, it's not hard. But clearly, that was just an example of if there are high expectations, a relationship, they're get that kid's getting what they want and what they need. You got a good teacher. You know, if those things are in place, and more of them in a school, the higher the likelihood that that school is going to going to be well serving its kids. Yeah, that that is definitely an awesome、uh, story and a, a testament on the power of relationship and caring.、Um, now, I know you have a number of resources to support educators and those interested in working with youth. What are the best ways for individuals to reach you and to acquire some of these resources? Well, we we have a website. You know, we're not. We were both college professors, and our our passion was working with people and working with schools and kids and leaders. And you know, we've had a lot of things published in Edutopia, other journals, and so on. You can probably find any of that by googling us. We do have a website. Schools disrupting poverty is the is the here、uh, are the keywords for that website. So you could you could. Find us there. That pops up, I think, when one Google's us as well. What, what we try to do and spend—we're both retired from from academic work at a university. Now we're still very much connected to Boise State as a maritime faculty, but but、uh, we're devoting all of our time now to working with individual schools and districts and helping. Them build capacity in schools to progress from being under or low performing high poverty schools to high performing high poverty schools. I, I was introduced to some of your work with Edutopia.、Uh, uh, I signed、mm-hmm. up for a lot of educational、uh, newsletters、mm-hmm. and studies and stuff like that. And then、mm-hmm. I did click on your website, and I was like, "Wow, they, yeah, y- y'all doing some really great work." 
So uh, I definitely want to uh, commend you on the work that you're doing. Uh, you know, unfortunately, it's still very timely. And just like you were saying, in terms of building relationships, sound like you build relationships with the districts and the schools that you work with. And I think that is a, a very, very key, key important. Uh, Absolutely. Yeah. Well, Dr. Parrott, I appreciate you taking some time out of your busy schedule to be my guest today on the Making Our School Cool uh, podcast. Do you have any final comments before we go? Yeah, I will. I will use a, a phrase that we often use as a title in what we do as well in it before we speak to a group or work with a team or whatever and that is that is any any underperforming high poverty school can become we've learned through studying enough of these any of them can become a high performing school if you choose to do it and it's there aren't there aren't there, there's an ocean of excuses out there for why we can't, but we've studied schools that that took on those excuses, changed practice, and truly became and sustained their their success as a high poverty school that became high performing. And again, high performing we mean if you get 70% of your kids, 75% to reading to to performing at grade level, we're going to call you a high performing school. And that's because you are so set apart from most other high poverty schools in this country. So you can do it. If you want to do it, you can do it. Well, again, I appreciate you for uh, sharing these definitely words of wisdom. So again, it has been a joy. It's definitely been educational and actually inspirational on my end to uh, have this moment to converse with you. And so uh, I definitely appreciate you taking some time today. Thank you. Thank you, Mike. I want to thank my listeners for joining me for this episode of the Making Our School Cool podcast, where our topic centered on positively influenced children living in low-income families and environments. Please join me for future episodes as we continue to explore issues relevant to the out-of-school time field.